Well, well, good morning, Hillcrest Covenant Church. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm Pastor Brad, and uh, thanks for being here. Those of you who are in the sanctuary, there's, there's a number of you that are here. The numbers get a little um, more every week. And for those of you that are joining us online, we are also delighted for you to be with us, whether it's uh, with us live or whether you're watching us later on in the week. One of the interesting statistics that we have observed over the past year is that when we first uh, shut down a year or so ago, we saw a huge number of people that would uh, watch and participate with our worship online at the exact same time as our services, 9 a.m., and I think at that point it was 10.45. Well, as time has gone by, I think people have figured out, hey, if it's a really nice weekend, I don't have to participate in worship on a Sunday morning. I can do it when it's a bad TV night on Wednesday, or I can do it when I got some time on, you know, Tuesday morning when the, when the kids are at the babysitters. So we're, we're seeing a lot of people joining our worship service throughout the week, and um, the, I think this is a new reality that uh, churches are going to have to figure out, and, uh, <clears throat> and so we try to use language that doesn't uh, make it seem like uh, you have to be here on a Sunday necessarily to be able to experience God in a worship context, um, as odd as that sounds. Anyway, um, I, I, I want to highlight one thing that I don't think has been mentioned yet, but I, um, I think it's very important and necessary, so I, wa- I wanted to take the opportunity to bring it to your attention. Uh, coming up, uh, we're going to be engaging in four weeks of prayer, beginning on Monday, that would be tomorrow, and continuing all the way through May 8th, basically uh, in preparation for the new uh, season of ministry that the church is going to be entering into. And uh, we're going to be look, uh, looking to God, who is, uh, who is at work in this congregation, and we are going to gather online uh, for 15-minute segments to, of Zoom to pray and, and pray for God's Spirit to, to continue to be at work in this church. So if that sounds like something that you would like to participate in two times a day or one time a day, whatever works in your schedule, but we're going to be offering it twice a day, 15 minutes to come online for a quick Zoom uh, prayer time uh, starting tomorrow. If you, want, if you want some of the details around that, you can get that uh, off of our website. Let me read for you from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27 to 38. Uh, Mark 8, 27 to 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and he be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said all this quite openly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, but turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter back. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. 
He called the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wants to become my followers, I just read that. Oh, here we go. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And for those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, they will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his Father with the holy angels. There are, uh, there are times in our lives, there are moments in our lives where we know we have to make an important decision. And many of us have been in that place, I I suspect. We can't explain it. Uh, We just know it. We know that this decision that we're about to make is going to be among one of those. I mean, an example of this would be the decision that we made, perhaps, to marry the person that we married. You know, we thought it was just about love, right? And, and all of, all of the, uh, uh, the good things that come with that, but maybe it was about that plus some other things that God was doing in us. Uh, when we make a decision to move or take a job, when we make a decision to, to uh, enroll at a certain uh, educational institution, you know, here in, in, in the Kansas City area, I realized that some of you made decisions to go to KU, and others of you made the right decision to go to K-State. I understand that. And I, I know I'm going to pay a price for that, but hey, I'm a short timer. I don't care. And right here in this chapter, in Mark chapter 8, we have this uh, just such a time for Jesus where we have sort of a defining moment. Mark 8 is really the turning point in the gospel of Mark where Jesus finally begins to speak openly uh, to his disciples and to the crowds about who he really is. Up until this point in the gospel, Jesus has tried to keep his ministry sort of under wraps, if you will. Now, why wouldn't Jesus want to have the news spread far and wide that he represents a way of living and believing that the world has never seen before? Why wouldn't he want that to get out? And the best that can, that can be said about this, this messianic secret is what the, it's called, uh, that somehow suggests that Jesus is not quite ready to go public with this news about who he is. So here we have in Mark uh, chapter 8, Jesus finally gets to the crux of the matter. Jesus no longer tries to keep the lid on things. He, uh, in fact, starts the whole conversation about who he is by actually asking his disciples outright, who do people say that I am? And the disciples, of course, respond as we read a moment ago. Some say you're Elijah. That, that great prophet who, who took on the prophets of, of the false god Baal and, and lived to tell about it. Others say that you're John the Baptist. Of course, that's the, the, the prophetic figure that was sort of the, the precursor to Jesus. 
And then Peter smiles and, and perhaps thinks to himself, he's probably standing there uh, kind of watching all this go on around him, and he, and he thinks to himself, I, I know who Jesus is. He says, you are the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the one who God has sent to fix this mess that we find ourselves This is one of those moments, I think, where, where, where Peter's answer is, is more profound than he actually understood at the time when he was saying this. Jesus asked him the $64,000 question, and, and, and instead of getting some half-baked response from Peter as usual, Peter steps up and he reveals, he reveals exactly who Jesus is. You, Jesus, are the Messiah. Now, if this were a movie, right, right here is where the, the music would begin to crescendo and the camera would be, begin to slowly move closer on Peter's face. And this important moment of revelation would, would just hang there before the screen goes black. Through this this unusual stroke of insight. Peter hits the nail on the head, and, and Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah. Now, in the world of the New Testament, when people talked about claiming to be the Messiah, they were making a very specific claim about themselves. By calling Jesus the Messiah, Peter is suggesting here that Jesus is the anointed one from God of all places, the one who has been chosen by God to bring salvation to the world. That's what being a Messiah means in this context. And when one claimed to be the Messiah in those days, all the other people who were wandering around in that time frame who claimed to be the Messiah weren't. So there was sort of this, if Jesus is actually the Messiah, then, then all of these other people and, uh, and Messiah types that are out there can't be. There's not enough, there's, no, there's no, no more than one job to be a Messiah in this context. And where this became a little sticky was that in the ruling Roman emperor, emperor was often believed not only to be sort of the political ruler over the empire, but they were also believed to be the anointed one, the, the Messiah, if you will, over the, the kingdom. So to claim one's messiahship not only had religious implications, but it also had political implications. So, so to say this too loud could get somebody in a little trouble with the ruling emperor because you were encroaching on his turf, if you will. And, and Jesus, he expands on Peter's confession in this passage by telling him what kind of a messiah he actually is. Mark tells us exactly what a Messiah who comes from God looks like by saying this. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. 
Now here we are, we're on the backside of, of Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. So we've kind of had the big reveal uh, last week and we've, we're kind of jumping back ahead of that event to talk about this really important moment in time in Jesus' ministry. You see, Jesus was not an ordinary, run-of-the-mill Messiah. He was a suffering Messiah, uh, according to, to Mark. And to the average person in Jesus' day, a suffering Messiah, that, that didn't make any sense. It's an oxymoron, really. Like, like when we say, the, the, uh, maybe we make a remark that landed like a lead balloon. I mean, lead balloons don't fly very far, right? Or, or I'm eating jumbo shrimp. Really? That, that's, that's kind of an oxymoron. A suffering Messiah sounds on the ear of a first century uh, listener exactly like that. A Messiah in the minds of the disciples was a leader who, who conquered, who, who ruled, who was worshipped because of their strength and because of their power. We know this because look how Peter responds when Jesus starts describing what kind of Messiah he is. Uh, P- Peter pulls Jesus aside and he says, Jesus, you got to stop talking like this. We know what a Messiah looks like, and this suffering kind of Messiah that you're describing, that is not it. Everyone knows that Messiahs conquer and rule and are worshipped. Real Messiahs do not suffer. Knock that stuff off, Jesus, please. So here we have this little episode in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, that depicts a shift in the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is. And this is kind of where I wanted to zero in on for a second. Jesus says, I'm a king, but I'm not like the other kings. I'm a king who's going to die. I'm a king whose kingdom is not defined by power, but whose kingdom is defined by suffering and death. And if you want to know the truth, those who follow me must learn to lose their life first in order to get their life back. Tim Keller, uh, pastor in um, Manhattan, comments on this passage by saying, Jesus is saying, if you want to be part of my kingdom, your identity your personality, your selfhood, everything that makes you who you are must fall under the cross. And I think he's exactly right. Everything that we are must be subsumed under under the cross, under the suffering of Jesus. Jesus is saying, don't build your identity on accumulating things. Okay, how, don't raise your hand on this, but how many of us have, have fallen into that trap somewhere along the line? Of course we have. We live in America. You know, I, Roxy and I were talking a few days ago about uh, our plans to move to uh, the Denver area, and, uh, and she came out here with our car kind of stacked full of, of our stuff at the last minute before COVID shut everything down, and I said, do you think we're going to be able to get everything back in that car and just kind of keep going west? And she goes, no way, we've accumulated too much stuff. And I go, like what? She goes, well, for one thing, you and all your books. Oh, that's right, that's right. But we, 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 we create identities around the stuff that we accumulate. Don't place your trust in the size of your retirement account. 
Don't derive your importance from the kind of car that you drive or your social status. Instead, instead define your identity by placing yourself in the hands of a suffering Messiah who wants to embrace us in our moment of pain and isolation and need and wrap his arms around us. For some of us, we derive our identity in the fact that somebody loves us, which isn't a bad thing. Other of us get our self-worth from our success in business or in academics or in sports. And the moment we cease to perform up to our own expectations in these areas, then our identity goes out the window with everything else, right? If our golf score is too high on a particular day, we just feel terrible. We, you know, we go home and we... we grumble about what we need to do better next time as if it really matters in the long run. Can you see, can you see how upside down Jesus' kingdom is? It's not, it's not like any other kingdom that you would be expecting that a king would, would come into the world with. It's, it's, it's upside down. Jesus, Jesus is not interested in our morality because, because that's not the key to the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't want us to live moral lives, but I, I think that sometimes we, as followers of Jesus, who have kind of this moralistic bent, we say, okay, I've screwed up. Things aren't going well in my life. Shoot, I better start going back to church and, and be a little bit more faithful in my giving. You know, la, la, la. You know, you, you've thought that. And we think by doing that, somehow things are going to kind of get back on track. That's not how this kingdom works. Jesus invites us to be part of a kingdom that is led by a suffering servant. It's not not some performance-based morality that we have to live up to. And I hope some of you hear that. Because I know there's people both in this room and watching online for whom you think that your religious faith is attached to how good you are. I hate to break it to you. It's not. Jesus is saying, it's not enough to know me as a good moral teacher or a charismatic preacher. You must come to understand that on the cross, I gave up my identity so that you can have one. Let that sink in for a minute. I gave up my identity as the son of God, the death on a cross so that you can be grafted in to the family of God. The kingdom of God in the gospel of Mark begins with a suffering Messiah who is characterized by weakness and relinquishment and the giving up of our rights. Being a disciple of Jesus means admitting once and for all that our agenda doesn't matter one wit and once we figure that out then and only then can the kingdom begin to be born in us now i'm not the first person to come up with this idea and it's a crazy idea let's be let's be frank about that but c.s lewis a number of years ago the English writer of children's books and uh, literary um, expositions and various other things, the evangelical darling, he, he says this. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. 
Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death the death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long term, in the long run, only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. As I find myself here at uh, Hillcrest Church uh, preaching for the last two or three times that you, uh, you and I will be together, I, um, you know, I, I could have cut corners about the, uh, what I do here towards the end and maybe tell really happy sermons about happy subjects that don't really require anything of us, but... I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that because I want you to hear loud and clear from me as you prepare for your next pastor that, that the kind of ki- kingdom that Jesus is, is building and the kind of kingdom that this church uh, has been involved in for many, many years is a kingdom that looks like this, where people like you and me are willing to die first. Lose your life, and then watch what Jesus intends to do with your life. Submit your life and your ambitions and your wishes to Jesus, and then and only then you will find what you have been looking for all along. Maybe if we put our gaze squarely on the face of a suffering Savior who becomes the risen Lord, we know this from a week ago, right? we will be surprised to discover that all of that ugly stuff that sort of populates our lives, that Lewis describes, will will go away. Maybe, just maybe, if we said yes to Jesus more often without a long string of sort of uh, exceptions, we will discover the life that we've always wanted. Another pastor named John Orberg writes in the same vein, and there's a lot of stuff out here uh, like this, and I just, I just could not, uh, in, not include this, but he wrote a book a few years ago called The Life That You've Always Wanted. And he speaks to the dilemma that we face if we don't uh, pursue the kingdom before everything else that we pursue. And he, go, he says this, the great danger that arises when we don't experience authentic transformation is that we will settle for what might be called pseudo-transformation, you know, fake transformation or, or false transformation. We know that as Christians we are called to come out and be separate, that our, that our faith and spiritual commitment should make us different somehow. But if we are not marked by a greater and greater amounts of love and joy, we will inevitably look for substitute ways of distinguishing ourselves from those who are not Christians. If we do not become changed from the inside out, we will be tempted to find external methods to satisfy our need to feel that we are different than those outside of the faith. We cannot be transformed, and therefore we will settle for being informed or conformed. Folks, we cannot, Hillcrest Church, we cannot settle for being informed or conformed followers of Jesus. 
We, we've got to go for transformation all the way or nothing. This is the crux of the matter. If we choose to follow the messiahs of our own making, whatever they may be, or we can follow this messiah who gave up his life and identity so that we don't have to. We can pursue the things that matter to us and then complain about the fact that our lives are filled with hatred, loneliness, and despair. Or we can pursue the things that matter to Jesus and with him, everything else will be included. This is the upside down nature of the gospel. And so the question that Jesus asked his disciples that day is this one, who do you say that I am. And I, I want to today leave you pondering that question yourself. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. Holy God, we give you thanks that uh, you were willing to go to the mat, to the cross, really, for us. And that all you ask of us in return is that we relinquish our lives to you. Our aspirations, our desires, our loves, our passions, our commitments, our obsessions, everything. And uh, there are times when we get close to that and there are many times where we grab that stuff back off the pile and we just hold on to it for dear life because we really haven't yet came to the place where we're willing to relinquish it all. So my prayer for Hillcrest Covenant Church as we find ourselves coming to the end of my ministry and into the beginning of Nate Powell's ministry that we will increasingly be willing to lay it on the line for the sake of the upside down gospel so that your kingdom, Jesus, will be what people see in this place, what they will hear uh, uh, sung in our, in, in, uh, from our voices, what, what they will witness as we uh, give our furnishings to Mission Aliante what they will overhear as they see us praying, not once a day, but twice a day on Zoom of all places. God, please, the, time, the time's now. We're ready. Transform us. When you ask us who do we say you are, we want to say with Peter, without reservation, you, Jesus, are my Messiah. Amen.